This is the podcast, Notable Speeches. We know you have many podcast choices, and we're grateful you've chosen to listen to this one. Today, an address by author, columnist, and op-ed page editor Sorab Amari. He spoke this month at a symposium held in Warsaw, Poland, titled The Place of Truth in the Age of Cancel Culture. That symposium featured speakers from the U.S., France, Poland, Sweden, Croatia, Hungary, Italy, and Austria. It was sponsored by the Collegium Intimarium, a Warsaw-based university that emphasizes three pillars of Western culture, Roman law, Greek philosophy, and Christian ethics. So Rob Amari was born in Iran and moved with his family to the United States when he was 13. He went on to earn a law degree at the Northeastern University School of Law in Boston and eventually became a journalist, writing freelance pieces for the Boston Globe and the Wall Street Journal, among other publications. He later became an editorial writer for the journal. Most recently, he has been the editor of the editorial and opinion pages of the New York Post, but he announced last month that he is leaving that position to launch a media company. Mr. Amari has written several books, including From Fire by Water, a 2019 memoir about his conversion from atheism to Christianity, and published earlier this year The Unbroken Thread, Discovering the Wisdom of Tradition in an Age of Chaos. Just one note about this address, in it Mr. Amari makes several references to a 1999 novel titled Super Can by the late British author J.G. Ballard. Can is C-A-N-N-E-S, that is to say the well-known city on the French Riviera. Here is Sorab Amari speaking on October 1st in Warsaw, his address has been abridged for this podcast. Let me begin by thanking uh, the Collegium Intermarium for inviting me to this superb symposium. Our theme at this symposium is truth in the age of cancel culture, a most urgent topic. We know that truth is under attack, not just the more profound truths of our classical and Christian heritage, which the Collegium Intermarium seeks to preserve and advance, but even the most basic facts of history, or say, biology. You really can get canceled for stating, for example, that man and woman are immutable biological categories, and you can get canceled even posthumously. Witness how the American Civil Liberties Union recently scrubbed all references to women, she, and her from the words of the late Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. The idea being, of course, that referring to women risks offending biological women who identify as men but still have need of the abortion services that Ginsburg championed as an activist and jurist. The venerable medical journal Lancet, in a major essay recently, used the term bodies with vaginas instead of women for the same reason. I'm sure we could spend this entire conference coming up with similar examples from both sides of the Atlantic. They're at once hilarious and chillingly dystopian. It's that dystopian quality of cancel culture that is impossible to ignore. Those of you who spend too much time on Twitter, as I do, know that we like to point out how this or that new social phenomenon resembles this or that fictional dystopia. These resemblances to fictional dystopias should arrest us, even convict us. Our culture creators are highly adept at prophesying dystopia, and we love to nod along as their premonitions come to life. But we can't seem to be able to stop the process, much less reverse it. 
As my friend and the Notre Dame political theorist Patrick Deneen has observed, quote, our popular culture seems to be a kind of electronic Cassandra. It offers entertaining prophecies born of our anxieties, and we take perverse pleasure in distracting ourselves with portrayals of our powerlessness. Today, I propose that we take this observation as a point of departure. I think we should put the dystopian imagination to more productive use than merely creating memes online. More provocatively, in a new book I'm just beginning to write, I contend that dystopia has already happened. It's here. Our territory conforms to the maps drawn long ago by science fiction authors. We have crossed the invisible frontier that divides an ordinary place, an ordinary topos, from a dystopian realm. And if that's the case, then the imagined futures of the past are a better guide to the present than any think tank white paper. Novelists can be so much more far-seeing and so much wiser than most of the people populating the think tanks in Washington and Brussels. Those who would tell us that we live in the best of all possible worlds because flat-screen televisions are so damn cheap. By casting a serious literary glance at our realities, or perhaps I should say unrealities, we can shake off such complacency and resist the temptations of presentism. The best dystopian literature, moreover, can reveal the deeper currents shaping our age, and that in turn can help us understand why we feel so powerless, as Professor Deneen says we do. In the United States especially, that sense of powerlessness is especially palpable. From the last summer to this one, we Americans have endured what seems like a series of revolutionary paroxysms. The politicized lockdowns, the mainstreaming of so-called critical race theory, big tech's definitive turn towards censorship, the escalation of woke capital's intrusions into democratic processes, and, of course, the George Floyd riots and the anti-historical iconoclasm that attended them. The shattering of bona fide American heroes and saints like Abraham Lincoln and the literal erasure of historical memory. In response to all this, we should of course applaud those who are fighting to tell the truth about our history in all its rich complexity and to offer correctives to the nonsense. And likewise, those who, at no small personal risk, insist on telling the truth about human sexuality. But to be perfectly frank with you, I don't think such efforts, without more, can turn the tide against cancel culture. Conservatives and classical liberals can shout that Abraham Lincoln was not a horrid racist until they go blue in the face, and it won't do much. What's missing is a deeper analysis to figure out whether cancel culture really represents something new and revolutionary, or whether what we're dealing with is merely the acceleration of older and deeper processes of ideological transformation. And if the latter is the case, as I believe and propose it is, then we have to wonder at the material forces driving the cultural changes, or at least cooperating with it. No, culture and social consciousness aren't reducible to material reality, as a kind of vulgar Marxism would have it, but it's foolish to deny that all culture rests on a material substrate. And it seems to me that we can't begin to properly counter cancel culture and defend the truth concretely without untangling these knots between culture and material reality. So we need a material diagnosis. And to do that, I propose we visit a place called Eden Olympia. Has anyone been? 
Well, I don't blame you. Eden Olympia is a fictional business park in the south of France, the setting of J.G. Ballard's novel Supercan, published in 1999. Our protagonists are Dr. Jane Sinclair, a British pediatrician hired to replace one of the park's physicians, and her husband, Paul, a pilot convalescing from a plane crash. It's a magnificent novel, a potent mix of noir and science fiction and social commentary. What matters most for our purposes is Eden Olympia itself, the business park, which is as much a character in its own right as Ballard's human characters. What are the chief characteristics of Eden Olympia? I'd like to focus on three which are closely bound up with each other. Let me know if they strike you as uncannily familiar. They certainly did for me, having read the novel first at the turn of the new millennium and then again this year. The first feature is an obsession with bodily health. It turns out to, uh, that in addition to more routine duties, Jane is expected to help Eden Olympia create a park-wide medical diagnostic system. As she tells her husband, every morning when people get up, they'll dial up the clinic and log in their health data, pulse, blood pressure, weight, and so on. One prick of the finger on a small scanner, and computers here will analyze everything, liver enzymes, cholesterol, prostate markers, and the lot. Paul, her husband, asks, so no one will ever get ill. Jane replies, something like that. Later, we learn that Jane is, quote, running a computer model, tracing the spread of nasal viruses across Eden Olympia. She has a hunch that if people move their chairs a further 18 inches apart, they'd stop the infectious vectors right in their tracks. Ballard quite literally foresaw the social distancing regime two decades before anyone had heard of the novel coronavirus, although even with his dystopian prescience, he couldn't foresee the rise of universal, permanent masking as a sort of medical hijab for the Western laptop classes. A term frequently flung about in Eden Olympia is corporate puritanism. It captures both the absolute workaholism of the park's professional managerial classes and their disgust with the ordinary grime and messy civic give-and-take of the outside world. Now, this puritanism coexists in another prophetic flourish from Ballard with a kind of controlled hedonism. In those all-too-brief hours when the executives don't work, they get kinky, to put it mildly, hard drugs, sadomasochism, even random ultraviolence directed against people outside the park. We will return to this transgressive impulse, but to understand it, we have to attend to the second major feature of Eden Olympia, and that is that it's a profoundly anti-political place, the opposite of what the ancient city represented, the ideal of the city as a family of families, a political community, a space for cultivating civic virtue. An invisible infrastructure took place of traditional civic virtues, Paul observes, at Eden Olympia, there were no parking problems, no traditional burglars or purse snatchers, no rapes or muggings. The top drawer professionals no longer needed to devote a moment's thought to each other and had dispensed with the checks and balances of community life. At Eden Olympia, the private has somehow completely swallowed the public, eaten it from the inside out. Morality, if it can be called that, is baked into ergonomics. You don't debate great public issues or allow the ancient rivalry between classes to play out in a political way. There are cameras everywhere and a private police force to respond to any abnormalities that might concern the executives. Again, Ballard is prophetic here. For us, morality, insofar as it exists, is programmed into our smartphones. Things no longer get debated, but algorithms ensure that we are steered away from extremist ideas the definition of which is ever-shifting according to the needs of the system. 
It isn't that the executives at Eden Olympia are unaware of the business park's darker side. They are perfectly aware, and they take what they consider sanitary steps to contain it as needed. Which brings us to the third feature of Eden Olympia. It's a place that has no progeny and no past. And indeed, in the entire park, there are no children, none. Executives tell Paul, today's corporate city is supremely talented, adult, virtually childless. You define yourself by the kind of trainers you wear. So much for progeny. As for the past, well, it doesn't exist. The executives at the park, you might expect, are quite diverse. This is a multicultural place. The professional ranks are drawn from Britain, France, Mexico, Japan, and so on. But there's nothing particularly British or French or Mexican or Japanese about them. Rather, what unites them, as one critic of the park tells Paul, is that they're all, quote, paid-up members of the new elite. They're the corporate chosen people. As the park expands, it literally destroys the history, natural and man-made, of the surrounding community. Paul observes, the site contractors were already at work, clearing the home oaks and umbrella pines that had endured since Roman times, surviving forest fires and military invasions. Nature, as the new millennium dictated, was giving way for the last time to the tax shelter and the corporate car park. And Eden Olympia wages literal class war. I mentioned that the executives find a kind of sexual release in ultraviolence. They go on these hunting parties, they call them ratissage, raking over, where they beat up local prostitutes, immigrants, tourists, etc., people who in some way or other still represent the older world that stands in the way of the omnipresent car park. One thing that's off here, the one point in which Ballard's powers of prophecy and verisimilitude failed him, is that the executives have this undercurrent of hard-right nationalist politics, and they think of themselves as waging war against undesirable elements and so on. Nevertheless, I do think Ballard is right in the main, in his analysis of class violence and war required to realize the professional managerial class's dream world. Now let me circle back to the first feature of Olympia, that is its obsession with bodily health. Here, Ballard's prescience is just off the charts, enough to induce goosebumps. The program of ratissage, of these vicious human hunting parties, was instituted as a mechanism to deal with the executive's otherwise inexplicable physical ailments, mainly respiratory conditions. These men and women who otherwise strenuously exercise and watch their calories and eat kale would suddenly be seized with respiratory illnesses. I call them the ailments of anti-political man. Something about this apolitical, ahistorical way of life literally makes the executive sick. And to fend off the condition, they have to enact violence against people who still inhabit the old political, historical, embodied reality that is part of human nature. Now let me be even more on the nose and tie all of this together with our present condition. I think we are living in a kind of Eden Olympia writ large. Or rather, we are in a stage of transition, a shift between, on the one hand, a vestigial world of still embodied communities inhabited by political animals with historical memories, and on the other, the nightmarish utopia of Eden Olympia. Note that the name is both biblical and classical, suggesting a religious mythic utopia, or non-place, which, when established in the real world, is a hellish dystopia. The paroxysms that so worry us, justifiably so, things like cancel culture, these paroxysms have brought us here today. They are the symptoms, I think, of this historical passage. Note the elements of Ballard's dystopia and then compare them to ours. 
bodily obsession, social distancing, the dream of a world without grime, and without the sweat and scent of other human beings. Of course, as Ballard reminds us, such a world serves the material interests of some classes and those of others. The laptop class or the professional class generates value by manipulating information on screens, and it looks with bewilderment and contempt at two groups it sees as vestigial, small property holders, small businessmen and women, and what I've called tangible workers. What to do with them? Ideally, all that kind of labor and value generation would be automated, relegated to drones, online retailers, and so on. But the intangibles class, or the laptop class, still needs tangible labor. Silicon Valley, as my friend and the author Michael Lind has pointed out, can't do it all without these massive storage and power generation facilities spread across the heartland of the United States and maintained by working class, that is, by tangible labor. Eden Olympia needs farmers and restaurants and nannies and high-end escorts. Now, enter COVID-19, a real crisis, but also what a tremendous opportunity to squeeze the tangibles class, to discipline it, to transfer as much of its livelihood as possible to virtual realms controlled by the laptop class. An incredible opportunity for an upward transfer of wealth. And of course, the added benefits of social distancing, literally enacting distance between people and classes, a separation symbolized by the medical hijab and the plexiglass barrier. Why won't they let the virus go? Why won't they let us move on? Because class war is carried out in many ways. Two, the general anti-political thrust of Eden Olympia. That today finds expression in big tech censorship. And I would also argue in politically correct language regulation. Conservatives detect behind the expansion of PC language regulation and the cancel culture the sinister hand of leftist American scholars themselves reared on exotic continental theories like postmodernism and deconstruction. There is some truth to that, of course, but this interpretation risks obscuring a larger, more important truth. Cancel culture is the new factory discipline. There is little resembling demands for ongoing redistributive justice of the kind the old left championed. No labor solidarity, little to do with enhancing the laborer's relative power vis-a-vis -vis large employers. Just demands for post-tax handouts, as well, of course, as quote-unquote representation or diversity on corporate boards, in university curricula, and so on. And of course, the firing of those who say the wrong or awkward thing in the digital public square, in workplaces or in classrooms. The goal isn't to rectify concrete economic injustices, massive inequalities in wealth, health and job insecurity, and so on. Rather, the goal is precisely the opposite, to mitigate, to defer, to smooth over, to mask these substantive disagreements, and instead have battles on procedural mechanisms for upholding manners. Manners is what cancel culture is about. Now, which social class most excels at politically correct manners? That would be the professional managerial class, the laptop class. Its children learn the patois for discussing issues of race, gender, and sexuality from an early age. They are expected to have mastered it by the time they take their entry-level jobs. It's a skill that private schools are teaching already. Working class people, meanwhile, are most likely to struggle with language. Even when they mean well, they don't quite get it right, not least because the rules constantly shift with the vagaries of critical race theory and LGBTQ, BDSM, QIA, whatever acronyms. By fortifying the requirements to speak and think correctly and raising the stakes for failure, the neoliberal class has now built a repressive new mechanism for staying at the top and keeping the oiks down. Three, the last one, ahistoricity. The problem of greatest concern to us, perhaps, 
Here again, the conservative diagnosis is only partly right, or I would say mostly wrong. If critical race theory and cancel culture and the destruction of historical memory really threatened the material interests of Jeff Bezos, the Apple Corporation, and Nike, and the trustees of large Ivy League universities, and on and on, do you really think they would ally themselves with these forces? Don't be naive. They would shut it down like that. And it isn't just the fact that wokesters trained by the disciples of Judith Butler have somehow captured the corporate establishment, although that's part of it. Again, the larger truth that risks being obscured is that the bringing about of Eden Olympia demands cancel culture. People who have historical memory and are rooted in authentic cultures of truth, these people have heroes. They have romantic ideals. They have authorities that guide their consciences. They have national pride. Family and community form the warp and weft of their characters. People who don't have such things make the perfect corporate subjects be they the ones who occupy the commanding heights or those who toil on the peripheries. All this brings us to perhaps a bitter conclusion, and it is this. Most of the conservative responses to cancel culture are bound to fail. We can't retreat into monastic redoubts and hope to be left alone. Like communism, neoliberal cancel culture has global ambitions. Those ambitions very much extend to our small classical academies and remote chicken farms. Nor is it of much use to try to combat it with the right kind of consumer choice. Well, I won't use Google or Apple or Amazon until they stop censoring. Consumer choice, even dissenting choice, merely reproduces the logic of the consumer society. Our boutique dissident choices are already priced in. Nor, finally, will appeals to tolerance or intellectual diversity or free speech avail much. These were the watchwords of the regime's protagonists when their movement was yet in its infancy. They wielded these watchwords against traditional authority, above all that of Holy Church, when they were still relatively powerless. Now that they hold the whip hand, they have no use for these procedural niceties. They have achieved their substantive vision. This is our tolerance. This is our diversity. What I'm getting at is this, that most of the responses to cancel culture are woefully indifferent to the inner logic of our society, to this historical material force, the drive to eat an Olympia. Today's culture war can't be reduced to a material substrate, true, but we discount the material, class-based, and political economy dimensions at our peril, especially so in a global, essentially bourgeois commercial empire. Truth and a culture of truth cannot be shored up without shoring up the material conditions in which these things were legible and sensible, where the whole social order was oriented to the good of man as a rational political animal who thrives in family and political community whose conscience demands authoritative guidance from the church and from the civil laws. This is what I take to be the mission, however imperfectly executed, of the governments in this region, Poland, Hungary, but also others. But what I suggest is that there are material economic forces arrayed against this vision. The neoliberal globalism of Brussels goes hand in hand with Brussels' attempt to rebuke and suppress national conservatism and populism in this region. We cannot ignore the link between class-based oppositions and what is called cancel culture. In short, cancel culture is the ideology of neoliberal order in its current iteration. We have to grapple with that. Now, how to link these two things, the culture war or cancel culture issues to larger economic issues and successfully prevail is a discussion for another day. Ballard was writing dystopian noir, and in noir, there is never any political solution. 
The noir protagonist typically peers behind the glossy surface of his society and finds ugly class warfare and oppression churning there. But he can't muster any kind of political action or mass movement to alter material reality. Dystopian noir is romantic. We can't afford romance, but a serious study of fantastic literature can sometimes help tear down our own fantasies. Thank you very much. Author, columnist, and editor Sohrab Bamari speaking at a symposium titled The Place of Truth in the Age of Cancel Culture, held in early October in Warsaw, Poland. Please subscribe to the Notable Speeches podcast if you haven't yet done so. Search for Notable Speeches in the podcast app of your choice. And please rate us if the podcast app you use has a way for you to do so. Also, you can follow us on Parler and Twitter at Notable Speeches. To offer a comment or suggestion, send an email to feedback at notablespeeches.com. I'm Joseph Slife. Thank you for listening.